Welcome to Amusement Sparks, the theme park design show. I'm your host, Andrew Spahn, and with us today uh, is a very special guest, Matt Alt. Um, I'm a huge fan of your book, um, Pure Invention, by the way, this is a book I'm talking about right here, but my wife uh, was like, she's like, I wish I could just hop on so to just to say how much you love this book. And I'm like, I can express how I feel about the book. And she's like, no, it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you're having someone on a podcast, you're going to say, oh yeah, your book is awesome. And and she was like, he genuinely like, you know, you read the, you read this book so much, like you were so obsessed with it. And like, like every couple pages, I'd have to run over and like show her something else that happened in the book. Oh, that's, that's really, that's really nice. That's really touching. I, I'm actually really happy to hear that because that was like the spirit that I wrote it in. Oh, I love that. Isn't that cool? Because I mean, it seems like uh, a content area you're pretty passionate about. Can you tell the audience a little <laughs> yeah. bit, like maybe about you or your background and and the yeah. book itself so, too? So I'm Matt Alt. I'm the author, uh, most recently, of uh, Pure Invention: How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World, which is a kind of history of the modern fantasy scape. Uh, the modern global fantasy scape told through the histories of all sorts of Japanese gadgets and inventions that transformed the way that, you know, we dream and and the way that we interact with uh, the world. And I've been living in Japan, in Tokyo, for the past 17 years, where I'm uh, going on 18 now, where I run a localization company, which is a fancy word for a translation company, uh, with my wife and uh, partner, Hiroko Yoda. And uh, we've collaborated uh, on a lot of books together, Yokai Attack, the whole Attack series, Yokai Attack, the Japanese Monster Survival Guide, Yurei Attack, the Ghost Survival Guide, and a lot of other fun stuff. And uh, for the last almost two decades, we've been living here in Japan, translating video games and manga and kind of embedded in that pop cultural complex. And I just wanted to write about it. <laughs> so that's so here we are. <laughs> that's so cool. Um, I was also curious, how did you get into the kind of translation game? Like what inspired you to start learning Japanese back in the day? I was obsessed with Japan as a nation because I was obsessed with Japanese toys. And I was obsessed, like when I was a kid growing up, we had toys like the Shogun Warriors and the Micronauts and then later the Transformers and Voltron, Robotech and all sorts of stuff. And I was just really into to Japanese toys. I thought they were much cooler than American toys. And I had, you know, they said made in Japan on them. And like a lot of the toys had actual Japanese lettering on them. And so I, I kind of put two and two together and realized they came from there. And so I had a fascination with this country that I thought was like, wow, there's a country out there that loves robots as much as I do and giant monsters and stuff. But I was very lucky in that my high school in suburban Maryland was the first public high school in America to offer a Japanese program. And... That was extremely, extremely, and even as a kid, I was like, wow, this is, that's lucky. Because I, I had been stressing out in like junior high about, I knew we had to take a language class. And I was like, man, I don't want to take French or Spanish or German. Not that there's any problem with those languages, of course. I just didn't, wasn't really interested in learning them. And then I found out my high school had a Japanese program. I was like, done, in, awesome. And I was, back then, Japanese pop culture wasn't really a thing like it is now. And I was one of the first, me and my friends were among the first people taking the course who were doing it because we liked Godzilla or Gundam or, you know, cartoons or anime or whatever. Most of the other kids were into it because of business reasons. Japan back then was a huge business economic rival to America, kind of like China is now. And now you see kids taking Chinese because they want to kind of compete, you know, in, in that. But I think it's, you know, very telling that only the, the only people I know who kind of stuck with it over all the years were the kids who did it because of pop culture or some kind of personal passion. 
and like me. And uh, I went on to study it in college. And, uh, you know, I always, as you might expect, been into video games and comics and stuff like that and was kind of a little disappointed with the level of translation, especially in games at the mm -hmm. time. And so I was always kind of angling to get into that field. And I made friends with game translators and comic translators and stuff. And we stayed in, in touch and corresponded. And this is something I always tell people who want to get into a field is befriend people who are in that field. Find people who are doing what you want to do and hang out with them online, in groups, you know, send them questions, you know, whatever. I'm not saying stalk them. <laughs> I'm saying like hang out in the places that are filled with people who are like who you want to become. And so I was hanging out with uh, a lot of really cool people at a company called Anime Ego that had a studio in Tokyo when I was a when I was an exchange student here, and they kind of invited me in to see some of the recording sessions, and I stayed in touch. And one of those people gave me my first break as a video game translator. Uh, and then I brought my wife in because it was just too much work for me to do by myself. And uh, that's where Alt Japan, the company that we run, got started. Um, so. Yeah, it all, it all traces back to my fascination with Japan from toys. Um, literally, I learned Japanese because I wanted to go to Japan and get more toys. <laughs> <laughs> that was literally my, my motivation. I was like, man, I'll get more Gundam kits over there. They have all the Gundam kits. They have, they have all the, you know, Transformers. They have all of the, you know, Chogokin diecast robots that I want. Well, Matt, did it work out for you? It did work out for me. It did. Now I can just walk down the street and pick up a Gundam model kit. It's great. Um, <laughs> actually, I work. Our, our company, one of my sources of pride is that Alt Japan does a lot of translation work for Bandai. We translate a lot of the catalogs, the instruction manuals, you know, materials related to all sorts of toys they release. And, and they hired us because they know that, you know, I, we love toys. You know, it's, it's, it was a, it was a good, good fit. So that's how it happened. That is yeah. absolutely amazing. <laughs> cool. Yes. Well, that's, 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 that's the story. That's my origin story. You know, <laughs> like, a, like a not so superhero. That's crazy. Um, Excellent. I, I, this is just random. Another thing. How, the pronunciation Gundam, is that the correct Japanese pronunciation? Yeah, Japanese Gundam. Gundam is how it's pronounced. Okay. So it's, yeah, but like when we were, we recorded, uh, we produced the recordings for all of the, the first three Dynasty Warrior Gundams games that came out on the PlayStation. And so we had to work with the voice actors and there's a lot of Gundam. Gundam is a lot. And there's also a big, is it mobile suit or mobile suit? Is it, you know, like there's different voice actors would, would approach it in different ways. So I don't know that there's any kind of like right or wrong. Um, but yeah, it's Gundam, Gundam, I guess is the, is how I always pronounce it, but Gundam is another way. I'm fascinated by language and like, and also correctness, like, like, uh, pron sure. pronouncing people's names correctly and stuff like that. It really right. means a lot to me. Well, so important. yeah, absolutely. So I always say anime, but then people yeah. are like, Oh, what a nerd. But then I point out, right. we don't say manga anymore. You said manga in the nineties, but no one says manga anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Why yeah, did we yeah. change manga and not change anime? It's so weird well, to my me. My big thing is I had to train myself to say karaoke instead of karaoke, which is what it is in Japanese, <laughs> right. karaoke. And like everybody, you know, if you're, if you're talking to Japanese people, even in English, you'll say karaoke, you know what I mean? But it's, it, it makes you sound like kind of a snob if you say that in a normal English conversation. So I'm like, and karaoke 
as we all like to sing, uh, which, you know, which isn't to say Americans are pronouncing it wrong. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty weird sounding word, even in Japanese, you know, it's kind of glued, glommed together. Like, you know, it's like how people say Pokemon. It's actually Pokemon, mm. you know, but, but I, I don't, you know, I'm not the language police. I'm right. not like the pokey police can go out there and tell you how to pronounce like Pokemon. But then isn't it short for pocket monster? So should it be yes. Pokemon? You know, like, yeah, well, that's the thing, right? It's not, right. but in, it in should Japanese, be. In Japanese, it's poketto, so it's Pokemon. Oh, and I see. We don't, we don't make portmanteaus like that. We don't fuse words together like um, in that way. Actually, it's funny, though. I was watching a movie the other night, the, the you know, the Freddie Mercury documentary, Bohemian Rhapsody? Yeah. And they're in a, there's a scene where they're like kind of negotiating or arguing with the record company about what the, the, the single off the, that record is going to be. And like Bohemian Rhapsody is too long, quote unquote, you know. And at one point, I can't remember if it's the guitarist or the drummer refers to it as Bora. Like, hmm. it's Bora or nothing, man. Like, Bohemian <laughs> Rhapsody. But Bohemian Rhapsody is a mouthful, so I can understand. But that's a very Japanese thing to do. To take, They probably call it Bora. Right. I mean, so many video game companies are, you know, Sega and Konami and... Yeah, yeah. They're kind of like a Namco. It's Nakamura Namco. Manufacturing Company. Yeah. Or, and actually, in that same movie, I was watching it with Japanese subtitles because I was watching it with a, with a Japanese friend. And at one point, the, a character is talking about Jimi Hendrix, of course, you know. And because it's a rock movie. And in the subtitles, it was translated as Jimmy Hen. The <laughs> Japanese called Jimi Hendrix Jimmy Hen. Aww. And uh, like in, you know, of course, they also know him as Jimi Hendrix. But, you know, it's that was I was like, wow, OK, yeah, you can even you can even collapse Jimi Hendrix's name down to it's like the Pokemon. Right. Pokemon it turns into a brand Jimmy name. Hen. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's awesome. I love the way that this book um, kind of, like I said, it goes over history, but it also has like these really interesting connecting threads. Like, and I don't know if that was something that you kind of intentionally did or if they just kind of came up as you were doing your research and you're like, holy crap, look, you could connect the string from that photo to that photo. You're like, there's, there's a similar, there's like a meta story going on here. I don't know if, was that something you noticed before you started researching for the book or was that a thing that kind of uncovered as you, as you went? Well, you know, I, I knew, of course, that like the Japan's cultural pull, like its cultural gravity, as as some people call it, was about more than any one single facet of its pop culture. You know, it's not just anime. It's not just gadgets like the Walkman. It's not just Hello Kitty. It's it's a kind of multifaceted thing. So I knew that there would be overlapping and and stories feeding into one another. Um, but I was unprepared for some of the connections that happened. Uh, the biggest one for me was the book opens with uh, me talking about tin toys, which were how Japan kind of reached out to the rest of the world after World War II. And specifically this tin toy Jeep that it's a it's a kind of little model of, of an American military Jeep that Japanese manufacturer made out of scrap tins, tin cans and stuff. And it turned out that the gentleman who engineered the Famicom, the the Nintendo Entertainment System, grew up playing with that toy. And I didn't know that until he agreed to speak with me. So, and then he told me, he's like, you know why I agreed to speak with you? And I'm like, 
because I'm a great guy? No, no, seriously, <laughs> why? <laughs> seriously, why? And he's like, no, I saw in the proposal documents you sent over that you're covering this Jeep. And I grew up playing with it and I hadn't even thought about it in like 60, 70 years. Wow. So this is, How that cool. was a really awesome moment. Like where you start to realize how everything is, is comes together. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I, I really like, like you said, it's, it's a very nuanced um, culture and even the kind of pop culture um kind of product focused um stuff right is still very very nuanced you know it ranges from sanrio type stuff to electronics and uh all kinds of different cultural products too as far as like stories and uh anime and manga and stuff but it's like i don't know it's so nuanced and each piece has something really different to be appreciated about it and they're created by different types of people too like it feels real and it feels like a documentary like where it's it captures um, the the subject really well, but it also in a, a compelling way where it's not it's not boring and it also doesn't feel like uh, a commercial. It's like authentic and uh, it's really cool. You know, there is like basically a chapter about the power of teenage girls essentially on electronics. Um, but then there's a part earlier where they're talking about um, Sony and how. Sometimes it's it's really wise to not do um, kind of research into your audience and bring them in for for product testing because they don't know what's possible. Um, but then you know it, later in the future it's like no actually if if a teen girl doesn't like this kind of phone then that kind of phone's not going to be a success. Sure, sure, sure. I mean that's how emojis spread to the world. It's right. like schoolgirl tastes. But you know I I really wanted to kind of curate a space so to speak a maybe even like an amusement park like you know your podcast <laughs> right. is about seriously where each one of those chapters is intended as a ride mm. but they're all thematically connected by you know our experiences of, of interacting with them and how we how, how they changed us so you know it, it's it's it was really important for me to not just toe the corporate line because companies companies tell their own histories right yeah. and and they and they often change those histories and there's nothing bad about that i mean it, it's pr companies exist to sell their products so it was really interesting to kind of dig down and find places where things didn't necessarily line up with the official narrative yeah and i don't know it's just if 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 people have as much fun reading it as i did writing it uh that's that's you know that, that's great that's exactly <laughs> what i want but uh yeah it was a lot of eye-opening moments for me writing it too so that's that's just the that's the point there it's it's one of those books where i felt like I just had to have like a highlighter or a pen in my hand the whole time because there were like, there's such diverse wisdom in here too. Like things from totally different perspectives, like totally not on the same page, but they're very like excellent little nuggets of, of wisdom and like really quotable moments that happen um, from very different people in very different times. But like there's something that I think a lot of people can take away from learning these lessons from history basically and from appreciating um, what what made them special? Like these moments. Well, it's not my wisdom. This is <laughs> no, the wisdom no, of, of people not. who created this stuff. Because I'm not a very. I am definitely not a very wise person. But the um, the yeah. I mean, but I also really wanted to kind of undermine the whole great man uh, like theory of of how like oh this one lone genius came up with the Walkman or this one lone genius came up with the Nintendo Entertainment System. A lot of geniuses did work on these products, and a lot of really cool people worked on these products, but the the road to how they became more than just products, how they became facets of our modern life, is is a very multifaceted sort of story that involves many people and also a societal backdrop. Like, you know, you can't really understand why did Japan invent karaoke 
and not some other country. It's not like Japan has a monopoly on singing. And <laughs> the components in a karaoke machine in the original ones were all like American components, like eight track tape decks and like American microphones. So why Japan? And that links into like salaryman culture, like how important singing is to, to bonding and music is to bonding in that kind of shared salaryman experience, especially in the 50s, 60s, you know, 70s, and, and basically up to the, the the big bursting of the Japan's economic bubble in the 90s. Right. It is so cool to see the kind of rise and falls of different aspects of culture too, like the salaryman being um, a hero kind of thing. And, you know, I think you talked about like elementary kids, like that was one of the top jobs people wanted to have when they're, when they grow up is to be a salaryman. But then the, as kind of the, uh, economy changes and people maybe there's less jobs for people with college degrees and um that kind of falls out of favor to you know kind of the uh more angsty otaku type um who they never got to grow up to be a salary man like they wanted to and like it's just cool to me to see um how quickly things rise and fall and and just i don't know how different it is how amazing like each decade is so radically different and the way um to success in the next decade, no one has any clue. It's just like someone's going to launch off somewhere. So I, I don't know. It's it's a uh, I'm in a way just complimenting the way history works, but also this book I think is really well curated. Um, and maybe it's just because I'm personally really into a lot of stuff from Japan, but um, most of it I didn't know was from Japan when I first you know fell into it. It just seems to be coincidental. Yeah. People have been saying for a long time, oh my God, Japan is like in the future. Every time I walk on the street in Tokyo, I feel like I'm in Blade Runner, you know, mm -hmm. or a science fiction movie. And the, the, the funny thing is, it's true. Japan did get to the future a little ahead of the rest of us, but not like in a science fiction way. They, they got ahead to the future by experiencing a big economic crash, uh, by experiencing all of this kind of you know, recession and malaise and youth problems and like demographic problems, like an aging society. Like there's more, there's going to be more elderly people than young people in Japan uh, in the very near future. Mm -hmm. So Japan got to the future of all post-manufacturing late capitalist societies ahead of the rest of us. And that's why it's such a source of fascination for us. Yeah. Not because it's a, a fictional place, but because they're, the, the stuff that they made to grapple with their problems uh seemed like science fiction -y to us because we hadn't experienced those problems yet. Ooh. And now that we are, look what's happening. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we're stuck indoors, we can't leave, and so we turn to, like, Animal Crossing, which becomes the biggest hit, the biggest video game hit of 2020. Mm -hmm. It's selling millions of copies when people can't even leave their house because it's a substitute for leaving their house. Wow. You know? Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I think that Animal Crossing kind of taps into something similar as Tamagotchi, which um, I really like the way that I, I was grew up loving those uh, toys, but sure. there was a quote um, that you had put about Tamagotchi. Uh, let's see. I wrote it down because it was, it was really funny. Oh, yeah. So about uh, Tamagotchi, uh, defecation and death don't exactly sound like a recipe for a good times, <laughs> let alone a hit product. And I was like, yes, right. so much of this stuff right. seems counterintuitive. You know, like um, if right. someone told you like, hey, you know, mom and dad, this thing is going to be really big, like, you know a little kid can kind of believe in some really bizarre idea. Um, and then the parents are like, that'll never take off. And then it's, it's absolutely huge. You know, it's like Pokemon or something where it just, right. It's, it, I don't know. It's so cool that uh, it's almost like the kind of Japanese market will just allow for things that people would scoff at in the U S all the time. And then it becomes such a huge phenomenon that eventually spreads to America. And it's, you know, I think that's kind of where the like, 
crazy Japan or whatever. Like, look at all this weird yeah, stuff. Yeah, wacky. Yeah, it's like but your your you kids know, are gonna love this. Like, this is you're just behind the sure. curve. It's that's what it is. You don't understand it. But you know, something like the Tamagotchi, even something as simple as the Tamagotchi, as silly as the Tamagotchi, <laughs> is like the product of a lot of these kind of cultural streams crossing in ways that you know. There's kawaii culture. The characters are very kawaii. They look like they're kind of bobble-headed, cute. Um, you know, in the way that kind of Hello Kitty or that the original uh, portrayal of Mario was, you know, it's it's a high-tech portable device, which is something Japan was always good at. It's a kind of video game, but most, most importantly, it taps into this kind of fascination that especially at that time, Japanese women had with texting on little pocket pagers and stuff. And they were this is around the same time that emoji are first emerging. Um, at that point, the first... When, when the Tamagotchi came out in 97, the very first sets of emoji that are the ancestors of the ones we use now were starting to appear on feature phones and things like that. So, like, Tamagotchi was this kind of, like, byproduct of all of these weird te- socio-technological developments happening in Japan that were themselves kind of reactions to, you know, undercurrents in Japanese society, like this need to kind of bottle nurturing and, and like cuddling into a product and what kawaii became, or the need for these portable electronic devices because everybody's commuting to work and things like that, and like this the desire to communicate with one another, uh, you know, through texting and messaging and stuff like that. And, you know, Japan just, Japanese creators happen to synthesize those kind of streams and decant them into this bizarre by our standards, toy of the Tamagotchi that right. like poops and dies. <laughs> <laughs> who would have who would have thought of that, you know? And uh, but it makes perfect sense in a, in a in a in an urban environment where it's tough to have pets, mm-hmm. but people want to nurture something. You know what I mean? And if you want to make something seem like it's alive, you can't shy away from the negative aspects of being alive, which are you know excretion and passing away and all sorts of other things. And that's what made that toy. Some of us love the excretion you know? part, but um, I <laughs> I see similar parallels too with kind of the. Story of Satoshi Tajiri and Pokemon of of kind of either through moving or just like the land developing around like I used to play in the wilderness with with animals and I think Shigeru Miyamoto went through a similar kind of thing too where his early childhood was about being outside and then eventually 20 years later he's surrounded by city and wants to kind of recreate those things so I think that's you know Harvest Moon and Legend of Zelda and all these things where it's kind of about Getting back to nature in a way, or or taking care of something like animal, or a crossing. new form of nature. Ooh, one of the yeah. big things. One of the big things I wanted to get into with that chapter is like it's just so common that adults will latch on to something, a new kid trend, and be like, "Oh my god, this is the end of society. This is the end of life." You know, I wouldn't have played with something like this. I would have gone outside and played. Mm-hmm. Why collect Pokemon on your screen? But when you start looking at the broader social milieu that produced Pokemon, it's like. Satoshi Tajiri used to be this really, like, this kid who loved playing outdoors, and then he couldn't anymore. Why couldn't he? Because all of the land got developed and, like, turned into subdivisions and stuff. That's not kids' fault. Right. That's adults. That's 100% adults' fault. And then they turn around and start blaming kids for, like, retreating into their video game devices. Well, why are they doing that, you know? So I, I really wanted to, to kind of portray the both sides of that issue, you know, and in and and not fixate on the negative aspects of 
of video games or of texting or of, you know, online communication. Because this is our life. These, this is how we will be living from now on. Right. You know, you can, you can either wring your hands and, and, and gnash your teeth about it or you can kind of dig in and figure out why it happened and why it's going to continue to happen and, and how it might be a good thing in a way. Right. It, when you're getting into a disagreement or, you know, the clash between generations, if you zoom out enough on, on history, you'll just kind of see like, oh, yeah, I see why that happened. I see why they would feel that way. And I see, see why the kids would feel this way and why they would grow up to be like that. And it's just it's so cool to see, I don't know, just life evolving, I guess, and like and how trends follow that. And um, it's also kind of there's a, a quote that you use from Charles Eames of toys are not really as innocent as they look. Toys and games are the prelude to serious ideas, which it represents really well, like, uh, there's another scene in this book. Sorry, it's turning into an infomercial, but I seriously love this book. But um, the part of uh, kind of the student protest movement and um, where they would have kind of like, um, uh, like, they'd have basically a shonen manga in hand while they're protesting and while they're almost, you know, rioting, essentially, all this, like, civil unrest is kind of fueled by these seemingly childlike things that their parents probably would have like made fun of them for for being so fascinated by but they were able to motivate that and turn that that media into to real power into you know real change it's amazing yeah manga manga was kind of the voice of the student protest movement in japan in the way that like folk and and rock music were in in england Mm. and and the united states and canada and places like that so it's just a, you know, that's just a very different kind of social milieu. But, you know, getting back to the toys, it's like kids don't make toys. Adults manufacture them. You know, adults think them up and sell them. And I, I really believe that the toys, you know, the toys that we give our kids says more about us than it does about the kids. You know, it, it really does because the kids, you know, passively see these things and then, and then purchase them and, and incorporate them into their lives, sometimes in ways that, you know, the creators couldn't possibly have imagined. But it's 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 the creators making them. It's the adults making them. Wow. So every time I see, you know, grown-ups like freaking out about some fat grown-ups, like like I'm not one, but you know <laughs> what I mean? Every time I don't feel like one. Uh, <laughs> but every time you see grown-ups like, you know, wringing their hands about some kind of new fad that they think is going to rip apart the fabric of society, it's like, well, who started the ripping? Mm. You know, it's probably not the people using the object. It's probably people of your generation. <laughs> that's great. Wow, that's a really good point. Man. That's fascinating. What what is a what is a theme park? A theme park is a virtual environment, right? Designed to kind of stimulate your your it uses fantasy and it uses all sorts of gizmos and mechanisms and things to kind of stimulate your dreams, does it not? Right. And it can it can manifest in so many different ways, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I actually live in the theme park of my mind, which is Japan. You know, because for me, it's a, you know, as an American, a person raised in an average American household, I, my, you know, my parents didn't speak Japanese or anything like that. They're American, um, you know, in, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., which is you know, kind of an American, all-American sort of place, I guess. Um, Japan is a very exotic place for me. Um, and it, it, that was always part of the pull. And, and so every time I go, you know, almost every time I leave my house, I'm confronted by some with something that is something I would not see in America. And that stimulates me in some way. Like, wow, why is it like that? Why is it? Or, you know, a new ways of relaxing. Like there was no robot restaurant in, in, <laughs> in D.C. when I was growing up, for better or for worse. There were, you know, we had video game arcades and stuff. But, you know, we didn't have really much in the way of karaoke rooms or, 
you know, the virtual gi giant life-sized Gundam statues, like the one they just put up in Yokohama, um, a, a literal sort of manifestation of fantasy in, the, in a real-life space. A lot of Japanese culture things, like I think if you scroll through the list of episodes we've done, most of them have some connection with Japan or Japanese creators. It's just, it's just something about it feels more, I don't know if it's more toyetic or more visually iconic, um, or if it just taps into different parts of, of human emotions um, where you want to kind of go to these places, like they are a feeling of comfort or at least of novelty where you want to go there and like... Um, it's just super powerful, almost, you know, the power of, of Hello Kitty, um, it, which I love that chapter of, of your book because I was always obsessed with um, Sanrio. And whenever we'd go to San Francisco, I would go to the Sanrio store and everything like it's there's something about it, which is like it's if you just wrote it down, like trying to explain to your grandparents like, oh, yeah, I really like this brand and they just make little characters and like stationary and stuff. And they're like, it, it, they don't get it. You know what I mean? It's it's something special. Yeah. Yeah, well, even as a guy, I mean, we we had a Sanrio store in in the in the shopping mall near where I grew up. In uh, it was in a, a shopping mall called Tyson's Corner in Virginia, and they actually had a Sanrio, an official gift gate, in there when wow, I was a kid. Cool. It's not there anymore. And you know, even as a boy, I, I loved going in there. Like I wasn't much of a Hello Kitty fan, but there was something about that Sanrio aesthetic. It was like so tightly curated. And, and even as a kid, and it was very approachable for a kid. Right. And, and the price points were good, too. Like, you kind of felt empowered by that. Like, you could buy a pencil. You could buy a notepad. Like, it was designed for that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and everyone could kind of express themselves by which character they gravitate to. You know, I started out as more of a Kuropi, and then I turned into more of a Batsmaru. <laughs> as I, got... <laughs> I, I, I knew you were going to say Batsmaru. Everybody loves Batsmaru. Uh, and now, and, and they're still going strong now. A Gretzko. Yeah, super um, relatable you to know? a bunch of different personalities. When I was interviewing Ue Murasan, who is the engineer, the electrical engineer who, who made the Nintendo Entertainment System, he now works in uh, at, a, at a university in Kyoto. He's a professor there. Where there there's this kind of game culture preservation uh, uh, department at uh, Ritsumeikan University in Kyoto. And it's, it turns out to be literally just a stone's throw, like a, like a five-minute walk from Ryoanji Temple, which is a really famous Zen temple in Kyoto that has this beautiful rock garden that's considered one of the most famous and, and perfect rock gardens in all of Japan, like with the, with, the, with the raked white stone that's kind of raked to evoke like water waves and like the... The larger boulders arranged just so, and you're supposed to just sit there and contemplate. And after the interview, I went there and it was like, you know, this is basically a virtual space, J just like a video game, just like a Sanrio store. I mean, it's not designed for, and you are consuming it in the sense that you are, you are, you're viewing it, but that kind of curation to me is something that's been going on in Japan for a very long time. And I think one of the reasons why they became so good at creating new forms of virtual escape and virtual spaces and dioramas and bonsai and like bonsai is another version of that where you're kind of creating this virtualized miniature version of, of, of nature yeah. in the, in the palm of your hand, you know, or the desktop anyway. And I do think maybe some of this is similar. Like you want to kind of be around these places, but you also kind of want to be around these possessions like these physical products just the quality of the the worksmanship and craftsmanship that goes into it um is is relatable whether it's 
a physical, you know, product like you can keep in your pocket or if it's a place you can go to or a show you can watch and kind of think about and dream about, there's something about that, the quality of the item itself that is just special. Yeah. It's interesting. I played with my American toys as a kid and I played with them hard, you know, but I didn't really play with my Japanese toys. Like I kind of more like sort of surrounded myself with them. Wow, that's interesting. You know, I would dis- I would display them, you know, and of course, you know, I would I would, you know, play with them in the sense of picking them up and moving, but the, a lot of them were too complicated to 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 really withstand heavy play. They were almost designed to instill this sort of respect <laughs> in the person. I was really obsessed with these toys called Godaikins. It was it was these big yeah. die-cast metal combining and transforming robots that were sold in the American marketplace um, in the kind of post-Transformers era. And they were all based on Japanese cartoons and, and live action shows in their home country, but we didn't get those. We only got the toys in America. And so we and my friends and I would, you'd have to approach these things as just objects, as designed objects. And, you know, the design choices that went into making them were just unfathomable to us. We just thought they were really cool. Um, And that's sort of, again, we're seeing this kind of curation and surrounding yourself with something to kind of make a a sort of virtual environment, which is very amusement park-esque. You're supposed to go to an amusement park to escape, you know? Yeah, it's like you're you're being isekai'd into a, a setting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you verbed, you made a verb out of it. Wow. Okay. I guess you can say that, though. I guess. <laughs> but I mean, it's like uh, all kinds of actual theme parks. You know, there's the uh, Nintendo World opening in Japan, or it might actually be open now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. At Puro Land, Sanrio's. Yep, exactly. Which I thought was a, a cool moment when that kind of came up. I'm like, oh, look, a theme park is in this book. Um, but yeah, I think these, I don't know if company is the right word, but these products tra- translate well into physical spaces, I think. And the um, like uh, jump, Shonen Jump like uh, theme park thing and the One Piece uh, area that was there. And like, there's so many just cool things that seem like a fantasy like the things we dream up on this show but they they already exist in japan like it's just you just have yeah, to yeah and in a city it's a part of it is like just the urban environment like in tokyo there's a gundam cafe you know there's there's all of these pop-up cafes devoted to you know like one anime or one manga or another and they'll serve things that were either in the manga or the anime or that are inspired by them and so there's just so many opportunities for consumers of fantasy to cross the streams and divert some of that fantasy into their reality. Wow. Here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the Gundam, the new Gundam, the, the life, they built a life-sized Gundam uh, in Yokohama that actually moves. It kind of, wa- it, it's it's more like a puppet than a standalone thing, but it walks. And there's this, there's a variety of kind of interactive displays and games around it. Like you can kind of look through Gundam's eyes as it's moving. Um, and so that kind of interactive participatory aspect of, of fandom is something that's very much embraced here and, and has been for a long time. Um, you know, they're, they're not really amusement parks, but the early fan events like Comic Cat, Comic Market, and uh, where like fans would get together. That's where like places like that are where cosplay started to happen. And, and cosplay is really a, a sort of bringing of the amusement park into your own life. It's bringing it into your own space, you know? Yeah, wow, that's a really good point. Just kind of being in Japan and having an eye for the culture and appreciating it makes walking down the street into a, a somewhat magical thing. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, when you're walking down the street in Ginza or Shinjuku and you're surrounded by all these neon signs and things, and they're not really exotic to me anymore because, A, I've been living here for a long time, and B, I can, like, I can read the signs. Like, I know what they're for. But still, it's it's like the, Tokyo in particular, and also to a lesser extent, big cities like Osaka and Fukuoka and, and other major cities in Japan are just visually dense spaces. And they're not, there are visually denser spaces in the world. Like, I think certain parts of like Taipei and in, in Taiwan and, and Hong Kong uh, are incredibly, like, where they have signs literally like hanging over the, the roadway and things like that. I, they can be even more dense, but those can be almost a little overwhelming. And I, Tokyo to me is, is like, you can kind of dip in and out of it. You know, it's like Shinjuku, not every place looks like Shinjuku. Do you know what I mean? Not every place looks like Ginza. The the, the suburb where I live is actually very, you know, tree-lined and green um, and, and a very nice place. But even here, we have a theme park, you know, the, there's the Ghibli, the Studio Ghibli has a kind of museum slash, uh, it's, I would hesitate to call it a theme park because there's no rides, but... Um, there's a life-sized robot from Laputa on the roof. There's a life-sized Totoro, like, kind of who welcomes you when you come in. A life-sized cat bus, you know, that you can get into. So cool. Um, so it's, it's again, you see this crossing of streams again and again where it's not, it's, it's not seen as weird or regressive or infantile for even adults to kind of get into that childlike space and just start interacting with fantasy. Wow. And I think that's kind of what uh, can make maybe theme parks feel like such um, a uniquely magical thing, at least to like someone living in America, is we don't um, allow ourselves to get into those spaces mentally very often. You know, even if you're walking into a toy store, you're not going to like feel like you're a kid. You're, you're still like thinking about prices and thinking about numbers. And like, um, it, it, I don't think it'll, most people are opening up their imagination and like really, you know, being present in the kind of fantasy that they could, that their kids were running around having a blast with. Um, it's, it's hard, I think, for us to make that transition, maybe. I think in the, particularly in the West, and maybe even particularly so in America, there traditionally has been this great reluctance to like incorporate childishness into adult life. Mm. Um, you know, even as far back as, you know, the Bible, you have like, you know, when I, when I became an adult, I put aside childish things kind of stuff. And there, there was believed to be a very strict line between what grownups did and what kids did. And I think particularly in the, 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 the younger generations, Gen X on, you know, and, 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 and amplified in millennials and zillennials or whatever the latest uh, crop of youngsters is like there's this enthusiastic embrace of childhood values and, and not in a destructive or, or regressive way but in a in, in a way that we we can kind of have our cake and eat it too you know you see there's all sorts of products out there now that like if that look like they're made for kids but are being consumed for by adults like coloring books and like Play-Doh released this set of like a Play-Doh for like adults that like has these very edible scents like your mom's jeans and your dad's shoes and stuff. And it's like, you know, you, grownups like, you know, unabashedly go see like superhero movies and stuff like that and, and consume, you know, toys and things. I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I don't think it's a bad thing at all, but it's very different from the way, you know, previous generations approached adulthood. And I, Japan was ahead of the curve that way, too. Just, just look at how, like, again, like, you know, as I was, a lot of people have expressed shock that I brought up Super Mario Brothers in the Sanrio chapter, 
But like Mario is is a product of the exact same design philosophy that Hello Kitty is. Oh, for sure. And Donkey Kong even too, yeah. And and Donkey Kong for sure. Yeah, I mean Mario like as Jumpman, uh that's where he debuted, but it's like the 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 I chronicle this in the book, but the reaction of Nintendo's staff and executives in America when they saw Donkey Kong was overwhelmingly negative. They're like, this looks like it's for babies. Like, what is this? You know, and one of the managers actually tried to quit and find a new job because he thought Nintendo was going to fail so hard. But like what they didn't realize, uh, because they had no cultural context for it and they were already kind of set in their ways is it was a new form. It wasn't, it wasn't babyish. It wasn't uh, unmasculine. It wasn't any, it was a new form of cool that was defined with Japanese sensibilities, not American. You know, in in America or England or something, being cool meant being like a rocker, you know, shirt ripped open, you know, gold medallions, whatever, <laughs> hair down to your waist, you know, what, whatever cool was in 1979, 1981, uh, was, you know, Donkey Kong upended all of that. And it did it with kawaii sensibilities, which, you know, you associate with, you know, little girls and babies and stuff like that. But it proved that, it's not just about that. We, all of us have like a little baby, little girl, like little, you know, child inside of us that we can nurture with, with these products. Right. And it's also kind of fun to like look at stuff like early um, JRPGs, like the Final Fantasy games and stuff where it's they, just due to the graphical limitations, the characters just look like little baby dolls. Like they're so cute. The big heads. and But it didn't it didn't feel babyish when you're playing it, right? You, you were tense. Exactly. They've got swords. They're shooting fireballs. it feels intense if you allow yourself to imagine that you're in the world but if you're just looking at the graphics and you're judging it by it's the book you know judging the book by the cover you're not going to have any fun and maybe that product's not for you yet you know you got to go open your mind and come back to it i also just you know the the the, how different like donkey kong and pac-man were from like video games in american arcades designed by american designers because you had like space duel and like you know defender you know you had all of these like missile command like all of these like masculine like super you know or or at least you know adolescent sounding you know that would appeal to adolescent sensibilities yeah and like militaristic too like yeah yeah, they're like macho Mm -hmm. right like they were all like you're using lasers and like spaceships to bomb you know ufos or whatever and it was this very like a macho sort of empowerment sort of experience and so the the idea that you could like empower someone with a munching pizza slice you know which is what pac-man was or like this little bobble-headed like italian plumber you know who's mario is like the exact opposite of 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 any hero in any like western video game up until that point you know you were supposed to be like a a, like an elite fighter pilot or something and this is like a dumpy looking dude with like a cap and I mean, it's Wreck-It Ralph. Like, I think they're just exploring, like, Eastern versus Western games almost. Like, aesthetics as far as video games go. Like, when you see the characters sitting together or or in any scene together, it's like, oh, yeah, you can see this is from, you know, some, like, fragile masculinity game designer where it's just, look how big the gun is, look how big the sword is. Exactly. Okay, guys. Well, and that's, you know, from the first moments that, like, the, the first people, the first Westerners off the boat, to Edo into Tokyo after it opened its ports in the 1860s, 1850s actually. Um, it had been sealed up for centuries before that. And then when American gunboat diplomacy opened up Japanese ports in the 1850s, Western observers were like shocked by how much 
Japanese people devoted to play, adults. You're like, oh my God, there's adults here who are doing things that we wouldn't do after we left the nursery. You know, they just couldn't believe it. And this didn't mean that these were incapable people. They had built this like giant metropolis and like Japan became this regional superpower. They were just shocked that in this, in this culture, you could be a fully functioning, healthy adult and go fly a kite in your spare time. <laughs> and it's not an insult. You're not saying go fly a kite. They're like, I'm going to go fly a kite. Exactly. Well, you know, to me, it's just nuts that like, you know, what you get your job done, you know, your, you, you know, your, your, your social, your, your family responsibilities. Who cares if you're 60 years old and want to spin tops? You know what I mean? Who cares if you're, you know, 50 years old and want to go fly a kite? Like what, what, that, like life is short, man. Like what's the big deal? But Westerners saw it as a really big deal. Right. And I feel like it's still, even since then, it, over a hundred years since then, people are still the same way. Like, oh, those kids are having fun like what you can have fun too exactly what also there's it's also part of this kind of trend and this is a negative thing of, of trying to emasculate japanese and asians it's trying to portray them as weaker than us which is kind of really seen in uh douglas macarthur general douglas macarthur who ran the you know who 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 ran the uh, occupation of Japan, famously made this incredibly condescending comment that, like, Japanese were the equivalent of 12-year-old boys, <laughs> you wow. know, as a civilization. And I was like, oh, yeah, America, you're so grown up. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, <laughs> like, like what, what, are, what are you comparing that? By what measure would you say that the civilization are all 12-year-old boys? And, you know, if the... If the measure is the really awesome robot toys that they made in the 80s, I guess count me in as a tw an eternal 12-year-old boy. I'd, I'd rather have Transformers than guns, you know? I'd rather have Transformers than, you know, machismo. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and it kind of gets to also the the power of that an early tin toy of the Jeep. I thought that was so fascinating that, um, you know, the, the culture had been invaded and you saw these American Jeeps all over the place and... Um, just seeing how different people of different ages reacted to those Jeeps and what does it mean to see an invader's tool of war, basically, just stationed on your corner um, and how people perceive that differently and it makes them feel different ways. But, you know, to kids, eventually it became like, I kind of want a toy of that. I'd attracted to it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're not afraid of it. It's very telling that the first product manufactured after World War II in, in late 1945 was a toy. Mm. It wasn't an appliance. It wasn't like a medical device. It was a toy. And uh, because in, in a certain sense, it was the kids who'd suffered the most in those in those war years. Like no food, no, no playthings, no fun. You know, it was a, Japan was a very bad place to be uh, in, in the lead up and, and during World War Two. It was, it was a, you know, there was a lot of deprivation going on, which isn't which isn't to say that Japan wasn't doing horrific. The Japanese soldiers weren't doing horrific things abroad. They were. Um, but I'm just talking about the kids here. It was not a very good place to grow up in. And I think it's very telling that the first chance Japanese adults had, they made toys for kids, you know, uh, after the war. And it turned out that those toys for kids also appealed to adults and also helped jumpstart the Japanese economy after World War II. Toys, tin toys were among the first things, if not the first things, allowed to be exported by uh, GHQ, by the occupation forces who tightly controlled the Japanese economy at that time. I, I think it's so cool that that toy can be transformed and like, I don't know, you can put your other toys inside of it. You can tell all kinds of stories that are not 
based in reality, although the toy is based in reality. So this is the thing most people don't realize. The Jeep was actually a source of fantasy for Westerners too. The Jeep's name. Oh yeah. What, what is a Jeep? Right. It, what is a Jeep? Well, that's a great question. I know the answer, but that's just because I'm a, an animation nerd, but um, it's just an abstract word. Jeep, like what is that? I don't know. Yeah, right. And it turns out that like soldiers basically gave that name because of Eugene the Jeep, who is Popeye's sidekick. This kind of yellow, like other dimensional creature who kind of pops into existence and, and you know, complicates Popeye's life. But he's basically the Pikachu of his era. Like all he could say was Jeep, 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 Jeep. That was all he could say. And so Popeye called him the Jeep. And so everybody started calling the Jeep because its name was General Purpose GP. People started calling it Jeep instead of, you know, GP, whatever its model number was. And so that, that basically it's like driving Pikachu, <laughs> you know. I love that. Like imagine like a, like the latest American like military transports called the, the you know, the, the, the Licky Tone <laughs> or like the Charmander. You know, that's, that's what the Jeep was. And so it already had this kind of layer of fantasy atop it. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, and and the Japanese obviously probably did not know that Jeep, the, the Popeye reference, because of censorship during the war years, there wasn't much in the way of American cartoons coming to Japan. But Popeye became actually really huge in the 50s in Japan. And without Popeye, you wouldn't have, for instance, that's where Toru Iwatani got the idea for the power pellets exactly. for Pac-Man. And, and it's Don Donkey Kong was originally a Popeye I was going to say game. the same thing. Yeah, there's so many connections with Popeye, which is really strange. Yeah, kind of cool. Yeah, it's the Pokemon of its era, yeah. really. You know, it's... well, and for decades, like that was a, a hugely significant series. Pretty cool. Oh yeah, totally. And it's funny because Popeye to me is not really like what you would consider to be like a, a really heroic looking character. He's got those weird proportions. He's, he speaks with like a lisp, you know. So there's there's a lot of Mario in him. You <laughs> yeah, know? that's true. That's a good point. But it's it's almost like. Um, scooby-doo where it's like what what is the ideal let's draw the opposite of the ideal you know what should a sailor look like this guy's got his eyes are always closed his arms are hugely deformed and yeah speech impediment and but he's super lovable because of that if scooby-doo just looked like a real great dane be like eh, whatever yeah 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 exactly <laughs> well it's that it's that deformation that stylization i mean and you know designers all over the world stylize their creations like there's very few like i mean any comic book you read no matter how quote unquote realistic it is unless maybe it's alex ross painting like you know uh super hyper realistic oil paintings of superman or whatever everything is stylized to fit in that frame and to fit the needs of the story and Japanese have had a really long history of stylistic deformation of, of you know, illustrated entertainment as far back as woodblock prints and stuff like that. So in the, in the 1800s, 1700s. So, you know, when World War II ended and people were desperate for entertainment, you know, illustrated entertainment, manga, leapt in to kind of fit that need because there was so much kind of know-how there, you know? Yeah, that part was something... Um... I'm a fan of animation, but also a fan of manga, but I have just done more research into the history of animation. It was so cool to to read um, kind of that almost leapfrogging or one creator being inspired either, um, I don't know, by, by I want to be more like that guy or I want to be the opposite of that guy. Um, just seeing these huge names and seeing how they all were super familiar with each other's work and um, how they were all like obsessing over each other's creations and then using that as fuel. It's so cool. 
Creativity never happens in a vacuum. So like, you know, I always, whenever, whenever somebody, I hear that somebody's having like writer's block or like, you know, they're stuck. I'm just like, go talk to people, like, like read more, like go out, read more, talk to people, start conversations because almost every great thing is a reaction to some other thing that existed before it. Wow. You know, yeah. and, or an answer to it or like my version of it or your version of it or whatever. So it's like if if any if people take any one thing away from this book, it's like it's not like some person was walking down the street and bing, you know, like a light bulb appears over their head and they have this super genius moment of inspiration. Um, it, everything in the book is kind of iterative. It, it's like a development. It's it's evolutionary more than revolutionary, and I think that's really key to the creative process as a whole. Is not to think of yourself as reinventing the wheel. And I think it's always, you can always learn from other people's works of fiction, but also nonfiction. Like if you have the patience or the interest in history, you can gain a ton of inspiration from that. You know, a lot of fantasy world building and stuff, like uh, it draw direct inspiration. But I feel like reading this book, though, there were several takeaways where it was like, this can apply to this story I'm working on, or this this piece right here can be helpful, like just as like, I don't know, inspiration or or an ingredient to put into a little smoothie that is kind of my creativity, like... It, you always need new inputs, and the history covered here was just, it felt like it was personally tailored to me, but then I realized, I'm sure there are tons of people who are Americans who love Japanese stuff, yeah, who are going through the same All thing. All of us experience yes. this. right. You know, like, that was the big thing. It's like, you don't, ha this book is not written for otaku. It's written for all of us. Because even if you think you're not into Japanese stuff, you are living a very Japanese life right now by carrying around portable electronic devices and interacting with characters and, you know, making your online avatars and your online, you know, the way you interact with people online. The way we interact with each other in many ways, especially mediated through portable and electronic and virtual mediums, was all pioneered in Japan. Um, you know, we live in an attention economy now. Well, the, the way they grab eyeballs through these compulsion loops, it was stuff that was pioneered by video game designers in, in Japan to get people coming back to play video games and stuff like that. So the way we text each other, which like, you know, filled with emoji, that was all pioneered by schoolgirls in the streets of Japan because they were living in a, in a period that is very similar to ours in a lot of ways, like kind of economically apocalyptic um, a lot of, you know, ambivalence about the, what the previous generation, you know, is going to really be able to do for us. How are we going to make our way in the world ourselves in a world that doesn't resemble anything because it has all, it's being mediated by all these new different technologies. So that's a big thing. Like, you know, you didn't have to be, grow up being a Sailor Moon fan to appreciate what's happened to all of our lives because of the products in this book, because it's, kind of percolated through every aspect of our existence. Yeah, and it is so so fascinating how many parallels there are from it seems like it, whatever happens in Japan something similar is going to happen here like 10 to 20 years later. It's not one to one of course, like the the demographics and the layout of the country are very different here, but so many of the kind of cultural touchstones that that happened here have happened in Japan like they were foreshadowed in Japan pretty clearly. The well, you said it really eloquently earlier, maybe half an hour ago, of like just that trauma hasn't happened yet, so we haven't had this recovery yet. Um, but then once a trauma happens right. to us, we'll have a similar you know recovery or whatever. Well, it's certainly to use your amusement park metaphor. It kind of feels like we've all been stuck on the haunted house ride for about a year. Um, but you know, even before that, there were aspects of our society that were resembling Japan. You know, and the fact that we were in the Great Recession. 
you know, and you see it manifesting in, in like the, the number of adults that are still living at home, the number of adults that are not launching families, the number of adults who are, you know, doing things that we used to point fingers at Japan about and be like, how weird, you know, grown, grown ups who are not, oh, they're not even interested in relationships with, with potential romantic partners. It's all like kind of virtualized you know, relationships with, with people online or through mediated through fantasy or whatever. That's, that's stuff that Japan got a lot of, I don't know, heat, but was certainly portrayed as being weird in the 2000s and, and aughts, uh, excuse me, the 1990s and the aughts. And now it's our, the joke's on us. Like, we're all otaku now in, in, a, in a very real way. Like, you know, we define ourselves by the, the fantasies we consume. That didn't used to be the case or not as much. So it's, uh, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the crazy, it's the crazy ride we're all on, you know, unfortunately we're all tall enough to ride this ride. <laughs> we're all on it and, uh, there's no getting off. Oh, that's great. There's no getting off. <laughs> but yeah, I was thinking like, I used to teach high school business and I was like, I would have assigned this as a book, like just to, for the impact of business. Cause each of these things is financially motivated. They're trying to make money. They're trying to express creativity, but also keep the lights on and, you know, pay their employees and stuff. It's just so fascinating. Like all the kind of lessons, like I said, that that can be taken away by not just an otaku like myself, but someone who just wants to go to work and do their job. Like there are a lot of clever insights into here, especially if you're more of a big picture thinker or more strategic type of person. Um, I think there's a lot of great takeaways and just the way it's written, you, you flow seamlessly from, from one topic to the next at a very quick pace too, where it's like, it's kind of hard to put the book down um, because just by the time you're getting comfortable, you're, you're shifted into a new, a new gear. And it's like, Oh yeah, I know about these things. Oh, where did they come from? You know, it's right. so cool. Well, one of the big, one of the big takeaways I wanted people to have is, you know, we think of creatives as being like, the people who work at Pixar, you know, like the creatives are like the people who like, you know, the guy who invented Astro Boy or the guy who, you know, or the, or the woman who made the Tamagotchi or Hello Kitty. But there's creativity in all aspects of the, the kind of, you know, business process. You know, there's creativity in figuring out who you want to work with. There's creativity in like giving latitude to, you know, the, the designers you hire. There's creativity in choosing what market segments to target or what you want to make. And even though the, the guy who created Sanrio never like lifted a pen and, and made a character himself, I think you can say he's a very creative guy. Oh yeah. Um, a very creative guy, even though he's mainly known for being like on, on the other side of the balance sheet, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like we interact with the creations of all the people he hired and not with him so much, but it's, you know, it's, he's the guy who had the vision to make this company and to, and to let the people around him make the things they wanted to make. And that's that takes creativity too, very much on imagination. And while everyone can kind of take this creativity into their job, regardless of what it is, there's also um, the kind of almost flip side of that, of thinking of these people, these creators are just on a pedestal. They're, they have a dream job. Like it's not a, if you love what you're doing, you're never working a day in your life. It's like, that's a bunch of crap. Like everyone's job is hard. Um, there's a ton of suffering. Usually people who are hugely successful and have like this iconic thing toiled beneath the surface for, for decades, um, working super long hours and stuff. And, and there's so much riding on each creative decision. Like the, the guy you're talking about, um, at Sanrio, like 
I think at one point you talked about how he was thinking like, you know, these strawberry things were popular. Let's do cherries for the next one. And he's like, if I would have done and that, it, failed. <laughs> it would have been like, yeah. yeah, it's just a super high stakes thing. Like one wrong move can cost you everything. Right. Or look at the guy who made the Game Boy, Gunpei Yokoi. Like you, you might think, oh, wow, man, I wish I could be designing a, a cool video game system. He got so stressed out making that thing that he got diagnosed with acute maltrition. He couldn't even eat. And like at one point in his autobiography, he says he was like borderline suicidal. So, you know, this guy was doing his dream job. Like, I don't think there's any other job he could have done but designing toys and games for Nintendo. It sounds like a dream job, but it's not like a walk in the park. It, it's, it's never a walk in the park. So, you know, the idea that, you know, that, that whole, I, I am, I definitely do not subscribe to the whole do what you love and you're never going to work a day in your life. That's just not the case at all. It's always, always a struggle. So you have to pick struggles that have some kind of personal meaning to you. That's the trick. Getting into a place where when you're struggling, there's some kind of inner strength because you know you picked something that is meaningful to you. That's beautiful. Yeah always going to be hard this book writing this book was the hardest thing i've ever done I, I physically collapsed from exhaustion at one point i've never been as stressed out but i never questioned why i was doing it i knew i was what i wanted to do so it's it's never easy it's never easy but uh that doesn't mean that you know it's not worth doing right you're, you're gonna be suffering so you might as well <laughs> yes exactly life is suffering so you might as well suffer in something that has some personal meaning to you exactly i mean it's, oh man it's, yeah and also i think yeah that the, that passion can be such a salve and such a soothing thing when you are going through those struggles you know when you're when you've taken over the school or whatever and you are just on strike you've got your manga there to uh to kind of soothe your mind and keep things going like it's i don't know it's it's beautiful um how i don't know it kind of feeds itself in a way like yeah sure what's well, it's an inner strength it's an inner strength for sure it's it's a you know it, it's a it's just it's something that that helps you keep going on you know what i mean and uh it's which isn't which isn't to say again that that it's it's always going to be easy or there's even going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. There's plenty of tortured artists out there who couldn't do anything else. Like, you know, the the real trick is finding something that you can't stop doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like you know what I mean? It's that's the real trick. Something that you that you literally you know it almost brings you pain not to do. Um, is is really I think the goal. And if that can support you so much the better but even if it can't like finding that thing and doing it is going to be very nourishing for your soul you know and and that's that's important is to find the things find your passions and like a lot of times your passions aren't things that you would you know they're not things that make you cool they're not things that you would necessarily choose to have as your passions and when you can like you know come to terms with yourself and realize that that's what is your passion regardless of what anybody else thinks and screw it that's that's a really key insight, I think, whatever it is. You know, maybe it's writing weird fan fiction. You know, maybe it's designing clothes. It could be anything, you know? Yeah, and if your ideas and your your pitch is something that you would, you know, tell your family about and they'd all say, oh, yeah, that's a great idea, 100%. Like, that's never going to take off. It's always the things where it's like right, you're exactly. wasting your life. What are yeah, you, you doing? You can't workshop <laughs> <Right>. it. <laughs> 
You can't workshop. I mean, I am way, way, way too old to be playing with robot toys. You know what I mean? If I if I went around like, you know, hey, should I be dropping all this money on robot toys? Like, of course, everybody would say no. What are you, nuts? You're pushing 50. Why are you buying, combining robot toys and like displaying them in your, in your, in your house if you ask anybody? But I, it's important to me. It is important to me. I like this. I don't care what anyone thinks. And that's the, you know, and of course, you know, I, I'm far from the only man collecting robot toys out there. Thanks to the internet, it's easy for us to find our tribes. But, you know, finding your tribe, you got to find your tribe, whether it's something, you know, cool or something uncool. <laughs> Whatever it is that nourishes you, you got to find it. That's a good point. So, yeah, I mean, Pure Invention, I guess, is in a way a study of passion and how media can fuel that passion and then how the outcomes of that passion, your your products, your thing you make fuels other people and like just seeing the cycle evolve and repeat and spin off into different directions. It's, it's so fascinating. And um, yeah, it's, it's from generation to generation, it goes in unexpected ways in ways that older generations are going to be judgmental of and not trust. And then it explodes and it's the biggest thing ever. And uh, invariably it's going to happen to you too. You know, you're going to be like my kids wasting their life with this, thing that I don't understand. It's like, well, good. That means that it's going to be successful. And the, one of the big key takeaways of at least the second half of the book is, you know, consumerism and consumer society is often portrayed as a negative, a, a, an unabashed, unalloyed negative for humanity. But, you know, the people, the consumers of, of these products use them in ways even their creators hadn't imagined to forge new lifestyles, new identities for themselves that were suitable for the weird times they were living in and that we're living in. So, you know, consumption, you know, it's, it's just like in the same way that, you know, maybe the people who use TikTok are using it in a different way than the people who created it were intending or, or Twitter or like all of the digital tools and social media that we are infuse our lives now. Um, you, when you make something and you release it into the world, it's no longer yours. Like you can try to control it. You can try to, to you know guide it but it, the fact is because we're living in a hyper consumer society uh the consumers are the ones who are going to decide what that what that product is and what tool what need it serves right the guy inventing that that tin jeep had no clue who it would inspire yeah yes exactly exactly or that it would launch an entire industry you know um that that really saved japanese the japanese economy in the years after the war uh, it's, it, nobody had any idea and, or that like more adults would, or, or an equal number of adults would be buying those Jeeps for themselves, uh, as, as kids, uh, that, that kind of stuff was all, you know, kind of unique, but he made what he wanted to make using all of the skills and tools at his disposal and, uh, released it into the world. It's like art. You know what I mean? What, what, when you, if you're an artist, when you release something, the minute you release it, it's gone. It's, it's other people are going to be interpreting it, commenting on it doing what they want. George Lucas didn't imagine Star Wars was going to become this identity for huge numbers of fans, you know, nor did he realize he would make more money off action figures than he ever would off of directing the film. Um, this is all kind of new territory. So it's just, you kind of kind of be flexible, go with it and and, and see what happens. And also I think be, be excited or inspired by the fact that you're not going to have it all planned out and the, the economy is going to drastically change by the time your thing comes out and the, the culture is going to shift so much in five years that you have no clue where it's going. So you have no idea how high your invention, your, your product can fly because it might be picked up by this 
subculture you didn't even literally didn't know about. So it's just it's just amazing how people can co-opt things and adapt things and remix things. Um, and so, yeah, the, the power of the creator is just to make the thing exist. And then its actual success is ab- absolutely out of your hands. Yes. And, and you know, consuming can be creative, too. That's the other thing, you know, like even if you aren't somebody who draws or creates things or runs a business or, or makes things, the, the choices you make in our modern society for the things that you choose to consume have consequences and, and have, you know, an impact on other people around you. So it's th- this idea of a creator, big solid wall, consumer, never the two shall meet, never the two shall cross. One is higher than the other. One is lower than the other. Those are all outdated ways of thinking. Uh, in our modern times, you know, we're all on the same playing field and we're all approaching the game in our own way with whatever tools we have at our disposal, whether it's on the making side or the creating side and, and makers consume too, you know, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. More than you think. Yes. Sometimes overconsume. You know? It's <laughs> like, I, you know, it's like me and my robot toys, you know, I probably have, I, I should have probably stopped back when I was six. <laughs> <laughs> it's been going on 40 plus years longer than that. That's awesome. I, I spent most of this morning uh, clipping out pieces for a huge model kit based, that's a Mazinger character. Um, oh? Yeah, I'm pretty excited Which about one? it. Uh, it's called Mazen Kaid, uh, Kaiser. Yeah, Mazen Mazen Kaiser. Ka- yeah, it's one of yeah. the later incarnations. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. had never heard of it. I went to the store um, to just buy like a Gundam kit or something. And I was like, oh my God, like Mazinger is so cool. I've I don't, never seen this character, but it was a huge kit for a good price. And I'm like, this is amazing. And normally I like clip the pieces out and then build that section and clip the pieces out and build the section. But literally I've only been clipping out pieces. So my wife was kind of giving me a weird look. Like she's like, you're basically just doing chores all day. I'm like, right. yeah, you're right. I'm methodically <laughs> cutting things out. This is like something I would have gotten a grade on in elementary school. Um, but then it's like, yeah, but it's just part of it. I don't know. The the work is worth the reward. And look at you. You're an adult building a model kit. <laughs> of a like robot. Of a robot. Yeah. Wasn't that, what are you, some kind of giant kid? You know, it's it's that's the world we live in now. It's it's okay to do that. And I, I think that's great, you know? I I got a big Evangelion action figure for Christmas. It was like uh it was my wife gave it to me. Um so it's like, you know, it's it's just it's the world we live in. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think, I do not think embracing that side of oneself is negative in any way, shape, or form. I, I think it's a, it's positive. Yeah, you get more happiness out of it. Like, kind of like we said, you're going to be suffering no matter what you do. So at least you can be open about what you want, and people will give it to you. It's, yes. Yeah. Or you know, you don't even have to be open. Like, there's nobody saying like, I'm not running down the street with you know flying my Evangelion through the air. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is Tokyo. It'd probably be okay to do that kind of thing. You know, it doesn't. You don't. You don't even have to put it forward. It's just. It's whatever moves you and motivates you. That's beautiful. Wow. <laughs> Man, yes. what a conversation. Well, thanks, thanks for having me on. This is. This has been uh, quite the ride. This has been has a blast. It, it seriously has. Um, yeah. Since I've. Since I first heard about you, which was an interview on Retronauts, I I heard your episode on um, Imaginary Worlds, which is another one of my favorite podcasts. It's like yeah, it's a great one. You're you're taking off right now. I think um, this book like is super significant to me, and I think a lot of other people. And I hope it I hope it does super well. Thank you very much. I I hope it does well too. Right now, you know, of course, you can't do book tours or anything like that. It's it's you know we're all locked down and 
stuck in our homes and stuff. So podcasts are about the only way to get the word out. And, uh, but it's, you know, the upside of that is I've met and interacted with so many cool people, you know, everybody, like the 99% invisible people, like, I, you know, and the people on NPR, the, all the way down to kind of individuals running podcasts who are often really, you know, just awesome individuals themselves. And uh, they're always awesome individuals themselves. So it's, uh, it's been a real, it's been a real treat to be able to do that. And uh, yeah. I hope to keep doing it. Yeah, it, it's a, a great book. Like I said, as soon as I started reading it, I ordered another copy to send to a friend because I was oh, like, wow, he's going to love this. Um, I'm going to start paying you royalties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need like an affiliate link or something. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I really do. I love the book. I hope that people buy it for themselves and buy it for their, their friends. Anyone who has shown some kind of interest in in culture, business, or Japanese stuff, I mean, just send them a copy. It's it's an awesome book. Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World. It came out from Crown, and it's available anywhere books are sold. It's a major mainstream release. Uh, my first really mainstream major big release. And uh, yeah, look, look for it at your favorite local bookstore. But yeah, and... Matt Alt, uh, pretty easy to spell. I really like yes. your name for that reason. It's real too. It is. It is really my name. Some people think it's like an internet <laughs> thing. It's not. Like I, I was there before the alt key Ooh. or you know alt rock or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> awesome. And on Twitter, you're Matt underscore Alt. If people want to follow you, um, anywhere else you direct them. Instagram is Alt Matt Alt. I'm on Facebook, uh, and there's numerous. There's a group uh, devoted to the book. There's groups devoted to that I run for giant robots. That's Toy Box DX, Yokai, Yokai Attack. Look for me. Look for me wherever you are spending inordinate amounts of time online. I'm probably there too. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Awesome. Thanks for being on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 